who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. Hello, everyone. My name is Emily Ma, and I welcome all of you to the Winter 2023 Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, presented by the Entrepreneurship Center in the Stanford School of Engineering and BASIS, which is the Business Association for Stanford Entrepreneurial Students. I am so excited to introduce all of you to my friend Elise Densborn to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series. Elise is the co-CEO of Splendid Spoon, a direct-to-consumer meal delivery platform that offers ready-to-eat plant-based meals. Elise was first introduced to Splendid Spoon as a customer. Over a decade in the finance industry, she joined the Splendid Spoon team as a consultant in 2018 and quickly rose through the ranks in permanent roles as the VP of Finance and Insights then CEO, COO, then becoming co-CEO in 2021. Since the decision to become co-CEO with Nicole Centeno, they have expanded the menu to over 65 meal options, doubled the growth rate since 2020, and recently closed a 12 million Series B round. Elise believes that food is the source for joy and connection, and plant-based is the future for both people and the planet. Elise, welcome to the Stanford Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series. I'll start with Thank an easy you, question. Emily. Easy, easy question. Uh, yes. What's your favorite smoothie? I have a favorite, but I want to know what your favorite smoothie is. <laughs> Mine, of course, fluctuates all the time. Um, but my favorite right now is called Pineapple Passion Fruit. It was new in 2022, and it's just like so vibrant and delicious. It's by far my favorite right now. So good. I am in the middle of drinking a raspberry cacao smoothie. So uh, thank you. <laughs> That's for, an oldie but goodie. <laughs> yeah, thank you for nurturing me so much. So now that we've gotten everybody's appetites wetted a little bit, um, tell us a little bit about Splendid Spoon. Maybe we could queue up the slides and you could show people yeah. some of this incredible menu that you have. Yeah, definitely. Um, at this point, I just put together a few slides for context um, and sharing some of our, our visuals of our food. Um, just a little context for the problem we're trying to solve here um, at Splendid Spoon. So we know, everybody knows and can feel, right? It's a very high stress world, we're all strapped for time. Um, and people are more and more seeking food choices that have lasting impact. So these are a few tensions that we think about because they're pretty tough to solve. It's a pretty tough design challenge from a product and a business standpoint. Um, and so just kind of like to tee up um, these tensions. So food that is both flavorful and functional, healthy and satisfying convenient and high quality to eat and low impact for the, the planet around us. So those are all like very at odds and opposing forces. And that's what we seek to solve with our solution. At the same time, like uh, Emily said, we've been around since 2013 and plant-based wasn't quite where it is today as a movement and a trend. So of course we are loving where things are these days um, and just obviously creates opportunity for a business, but also kind of like shows the shift in consciousness um, of sort of general society around the impact of plant-based. So um, plant-centric diets are they're becoming more and more mainstream. We have 87% of Americans adopting more plant-based habits. And this doesn't mean completely plant-based, but are interested in evolving their diets to include more plant-rich foods. So what do we serve? Um, we are just, we view ourselves as just food to fuel, excuse me, it's a mouthful. Um, an ambitious and plant-forward lifestyle. So all of our meals are ready to eat. There's absolutely no prep required. Um, everything is 100% plant-based, so free from gluten and dairy. 
Um, our menu is very wide ranging. We're inspired by all global flavors and cuisines. Um, and we really, really pack them um, with whole food ingredients um, and really thoughtful balanced nutritional profiles working with our dietitian and our chef. Um, what this means is we have 65 plus SKUs of nourishing soups, stews, grain bowls, noodle bowls, dishes, uh, dinner trays or dishes um, as we call them internally smoothies, juices, and shots. Um, so we're really seeking to sort of like take care of, of um, any moment in the day and really offer a solution for um, if you have sort of like a meal or just a moment in between meals um, where you're, you're hoping to have a little bit of a plant-based plant punch, if you will. Um, all of our plans are super flexible. We do really responsive meal curation. So we have algorithms funding or fueling um, everybody's unique menus. Um, definitely trying to have everybody enjoy our best flavors first, um, but then tailoring quickly uh, to what people like and don't like. So what's our footprint and where are we? We actually ship all over the um, 48 contiguous states. So we have 200,000 customers, 77% um, of which are outside of New York and California. So this is an, this is an outdated um, couple years old, but it is a heat map of where we, where we ship to. Um, and to date, we've sold um, over 13 million plant-based meals. So we're super, super proud of that statistic. Uh, and a little bit about the business model and the e-commerce platform and how we approach um, innovation. Um, so <clears throat> what sort of our tech-enabled e-commerce platform does business model design um, provides us is variety. So we have five new recipes per quarter um, with a really rapid innovation cycle. So for us, that looks like six to nine months from concept to customer. And in a traditional retail environment, that might be 12 to 18 months. So just to give a little bit of like context of, of the opportunity there, um, that allows us to be take more risks um, with flavors and um, do it at a lower cost, more um, sort of like agile way. Um, and that way we can figure out what, what customers like and love um, before we're trying to sit on a shelf. So that's um, definitely a competitive advantage for us. Um, <clears throat> we also get feedback really quickly. So there's not sort of like a middle, um, like a middleman between us and our customers. We are getting feedback immediately on um, what people like and don't like. Um, and we can do so within about a 90 day period. We can understand if this is going to be a bestseller or is going to be something seasonal or is something that we just we didn't hit the mark and we need to um, potentially retire. Um, just a quick thing about the, the actual operating footprint, because this is, um, I think, interesting and unique to how we do business at Splendid Spoon. Um, we actually have an entire third party um, manufacturing and logistics network. So we work with four different co-manufacturers. Um, we have, these are manufacturing terms, but hot fill bowl, map tray, and HPP capabilities, which just means that we have um, a different, a wide variety of the way in which our food can be served to customers, whether it's a bowl or a tray, and we have different shelf lives. So all of our food is flash frozen. Um, and so um, many of our dishes, you have a 365 day shelf life on our smoothie and our fresh product. We have 90 days, which just means that there's a little more flexibility for the customer in terms of trying to anticipate their meal times um, and us being able to, to kind of stock their fridge or freezer. Um, and then from a convenience perspective, we are within two days um, from all of continental US. So that heat map, we can get to everybody in two days. Um, so it's a pretty complex network um, that we've really, really put all of our blood, sweat and tears into over the last several years um, that we're really proud of and excited about from a business model perspective. And then this is just sort of like end of the day, what are we trying to do here? Like we're really just trying to take um, care of one plant-based moment a day for our customers and just really have that lasting impact 
on their lives, um, having it there, them be more energized. We know our customers are really busy, very full lives. Um, and that takes a lot of um, fuel. Uh, so be more energized, more healthful, and just have a meaningful impact on um, their health and their uh, and that, that of the planet. Um, and this is just like a fun quote. Um, I never knew vegan could taste so good um, is a customer review we've received. Um, and that's what we're hoping to do is sort of shift the mindset um, and make plant-based um, eating more enjoyable and more approachable um, for a wider group of people. That's all I've got. That's splendid. That's amazing. I'm so hungry. The biggest challenge with talking to you about this is that it's like about to be dinner time and all I can think of <laughs> is what I want to eat. So, you know, but before we do that, before we go to dinner, I have some questions for you. Sure. You have an amazing company you and Nicole together run and your journey to becoming co-CEO is rather unique. You know, there's a lot of folks that we're going to speak to later in this quarter who are co-founders, co-CEOs from the get-go, but you and Nicole had a journey to come together eventually. Could you tell yeah. us a little bit about that? Like, how did you go from being like a super customer to being where you at, are at today? Totally. Um, so I think the funny, the funniest part of my journey with Splendid Spoon is that it actually started at a birthday party. Um, so I met one of Nicole's co-founders and um, we were just kind of chit-chatting. And at the time I lived in the Midwest and I was working full-time and going to school full-time and was interested in a plant-based diet for my own personal like research and reason, um, reasons. Um, and kind of quickly shifted from sort of like, what do you do to how do I sign up? Like it was a very immediate um, sale on the customer front. I mean, so that was sort of like that my initial experience, I started as a customer, then I was really excited about the concept and idea as an investor. And then um, this co-founder of Nicole's at the time had uh, reached out to me actually when I was in transition. So I was stepping away from my world um, in the industrials um, in middle market manufacturing and knew I, I wanted to go after um, the intersection of food and health and food and tech. Um, but I didn't quite know how I was going to do that. And he called with an, an operating problem at the time we had just launched smoothies and um, which feels like forever ago, but we had just launched smoothies and they are a different product line. They have a shorter shelf life than everything else. And, and so there were some like bumps in the road as there are um, in early stage business building. And I came in to sort of like parachute in and solve the smoothie purchasing problem. So that was sort of like part one. Um, as you said, I was a consultant first. So I actually was a little like, okay, let me, I just quit my job. I'm in the Midwest. I don't know which way is up. Like, let me do this part-time. Um, and that was my consulting project. Um, so uh, it was, it was cool because it was a really nice way to sort of just like get introduced to a completely different um, size, stage, industry, all of the things um, just by getting my hands dirty and, and sort of like um, proving myself, so to speak. Um, but at the time it wasn't, I wasn't actually like seeking to join Splendid Spoon. It was sort of just the next step and, and an interesting learning opportunity right where I was thinking of going. Um, so after, um, after we solved the smoothie problem, um, we actually were hiring a VP of operations. I came out to New York, um, to train and transition to him. Um, and Nicole was like, how about, how about you stay? How about you move to New York and join the team? Um, and so that was sort of like, I came in as this like um, finance and strategy um, role. Uh, Splendid Spoon had just raised its series A at the time. Um, and was just kind of in need. I mean, it was like a seven person team. So in need of really um, some additional sophistication and um, structures and systems and just um, tighter strategic thinking and, and things of that nature. Um, and that's what I came in to do initially. Uh, and I think the shift, 
let's see the shift from, from finance and strategy and sort of like basics, um, there to COO was actually pretty quick. There was a pretty, um, quick, there was a couple of just like between the smoothies and, um, needing to build out a team for, um, marketing and tech. There was, there was just a quick, um, understanding that like the team reporting to me made sense. Um, just from like an operator standpoint, I had a little more operating experience. Nicole's a super talented chef, super talented communicator and brand builder. Um, but I had, you know, just graduated business school and had some of those more like operating skill sets. Um, and so we shifted pretty quickly into the COO um, and CEO dynamic um, in early 2019. Um, and that re worked really well for us. Um, it gave us a chance to sort of... Um, like find our ways in these new roles uh, and to build trust and to sort of like understand our respective strengths and weaknesses. Um, but over time, it pretty organically evolved candidly into sort of more of a partnership. Um, and I think it was the beginning of 2021, we decided to like formalize this into a co-CEO relationship. Um, and it, it has been very effective for us. Um, so there's, there's lots of different bumps and bruises along the way, but it's been um, it's been a really effective model for us. You know, at least that's a huge highlight of this organization that you and Nicole now run. Uh, we have a number of other co-CEOs coming to visit uh, and, and speak with us this quarter. And it's pretty unique. It's not, you know, it, it's a pretty unique structure that hasn't been around for that long. But, you know, a lot of research has gone into the space and it turns out that, you know, companies with co-CEOs actually function much better for the most part. But certain things need to be in place. There's benefits, there's this disadvantages. So knowing that you've been on this journey, sort of growing up through Spoon and Spoon, like how do you and Nicole make it work so effectively? Like what are things that you put in place or what conversations did you yeah. have? Like, and, and you mentioned some bumps in the road. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that and sort of talk about what, how, how you've come to an agreement of this, this unique structure. Totally. So th there's like sort of the soft stuff and then there's the very tactical stuff. And so I'm, I'm going to start with the smushy stuff first um, because I think it's actually the sort of like more important part. Um, and so I mentioned sort of building trust and, and fundamentally that is like absolutely a necessary element of partnership. I think we know, all know that from our own experiences and any type of partnership or relationship, whether it's at work or at home. Um, trust is like absolutely foundational and key. Um, and so we work really hard at that and have worked really hard at that both through time, right? Um, and and just working together and building that sort of rhythm, um, but also transparency and um, vulnerability and and being really like honest um, and uncomfortable and, and sharing our, our thoughts and our experience and not being afraid to say what you really think. I think a lot of... Um, sort of the initial aha moments for us. I think where Nicole really saw a partner in me and not to speak for her, but this is like, this is something she shared with me is one of um, an early like moment we had where I was like, we need to change this immediately or else like the business viability is at question. And, and she was like, you know, I just respected so much to have somebody tell me that um, uh, directly and like fearlessly. Um, and so that I think established a lot of trust for us. Um, it also just means really strong communication skills and holding yourself and each other accountable um, to what you say you will do and not do. Um, and just be like open and gentle with each other when when there are misses, because there definitely are. There are definitely fumbles. We're moving very quickly. Um, and and um, when you say when you say bumps in the road, like what are some examples of that? A lot of that has to do actually with the different 
stages of the business, like as the business evolves and needs different things, um, our roles actually evolve too. So, so people are often like, what does you do? And what does she do? And it's actually not that static. It's fairly dynamic. Um, and it kind of depends on, on, um, the season. So if we're in fundraising season, she might be like mostly externally focused and I'm fully internally focused and I'm sort of like running the day to day. Um, if we're in sort of like an innovation and building cycle, we may sort of divide and conquer the inside um, and be, she'll be a little bit more hands-on and things like innovation and um, sort of like brand philosophy and all sort of connect the dots cross-functionally and all of those things. Um, so it really just kind of depends. And I would say like our bumps have been um, when we're going through those transition phases, if we're not communicating effectively, if we're not like, and or acknowledging like that this transition is happening, um, at least for me, I'm often like, I just need us to like talk about it um, and make sure that we're like on the same page and and move like sort of rowing in the same direction. Um, but we've never had any sort of like complete meltdown fights. It's always just been um, sort of the typical stuff in, in any sort of working relationship. Um, you also, I think like tactically, um, you really do have to align on sort of what decisions you do need to make together and what decisions you don't. And we sort of have this belief that there's only a handful of deci big decisions in a year that we need to like sit down, pause, like really, really dive deep on together. And then we give each other a lot of room um, and, and trust um, to move quickly if one of us isn't in the room and we, we work really hard to just bring the other one up to speed. Um, so we have a really um, strong discipline of like weekly syncs and, and touch bases, um, but also just like keeping our egos in check and knowing when we actually need to be in the room or not and letting go when we don't and just saying, I don't have to be a part of this every single time. Um, and then I think the other thing that has been really like pivotal to our success is, is um, having sort of like a clear language for conflict resolution. Um, we have like a practice framework across the organization of, of sort of like how to communicate through conflict and the framing and, and facts and judgments and asks and, and things of that nature. And while Nicole and I don't typically sit down and like flow through our framework um, tool word for word, we do use that language. Like it is sort of just this muscle we've built where um, you kind of know if you're, if it's, if those words are being invoked, you're trying to like negotiate through something a little bit sticky or um, debate through something um, where maybe there's divergent thinking. That's so powerful. That note about being really intentional about conflict resolution. You know, I've, I've, we've had a number of speakers talk about how they didn't put that in place early on in a startup. And that was the thing that got them, right? And so kudos to you and Nicole for being so intentional about that. All right, a quick palate cleanser. Um, I know you and Nicole probably spent a lot of meals together. What is your favorite dish? Oh, my favorite dish at Splendid Spoon? Yes. I think it's the new risotto. Um, it's got these like garlicky, garlicky white beans that are just, I think, completely different from anything else out there on the market and just super, super flavorful um, and satisfying. Mm. Okay, I'm going to have to order that next. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's dive back in. So earlier you mentioned responsive menu curation and you have algorithms that do that. I loved what you had to say when you and I chatted about the role of technology in a food company and how you're really combining like the brains and the brawn. Could you maybe tell us a little bit more about uh, the, the tech stack and how that 
comes to interplay with a very, very asset heavy business and dive into that for us a little bit. Totally. Yeah. This is like, this is like a hairy one. It's a little abstract, but also super, um, like actually physical. Um, so I mean, the, there's a couple of ways to look at it. Um, and first is like, sort of like the direct, there's the demand side, right? There's like the thinking about um, customers and how sort of like our e-commerce platform allows us to do that. So um, like I shared in my presentation, it's like we get the feedback, we can innovate quickly, we can take greater risks and we have greater um, certainty of like what is the the sort of like dimensions of success in, in a meal um, and sort of like how customers are behaving in order patterns and things of that nature. So that gives us sort of like the, the tech elements of that um, and the data elements of that um, are definitely helpful in us meeting and um, exceeding and anticipating the customer need um, faster and better. Um, and then on the supply side, it, like we have this entire like super complex network of external partners. Um, and there's not really like, um, it's, it's evolved since we've started this for sure. Um, but there wasn't like a set tech stack when we started, like Shopify was, didn't exist when Splendid Spoon started. So we actually like jumped into custom building, um, very early on. And, um, I'll come back to that because we actually are in both worlds now. Um, but it's a very, um, interesting thing of like stringing together and integrating all these, um, disparate tech systems that are not ours just to fulfill orders. Um, and so that is sort of like, those that that super disparate lean operating footprint has been one of our our sort of secrets of success from a cost structure perspective, but it required us to have really smart um, technology building and integrations of all these different systems. Um, so I kind of view tech as like the bridge between these two worlds. Um, like you said, the brains is sort of like tech forward and tech enabled and the bronze is like the the raw muscle of actually producing a food product and old school been around forever um one of the oldest like oldest industries right is like how you manufacture food sure we brought innovation to like the format and how it bring, how it's actually um produced and brought to scale and brought to customers at their doorstep but obviously food is not a new a new industry um and so for for us like that is um that is like both a cultural problem and a business design problem um, that we try to solve with um, with technology. Um, so from as it like as it relates to our actual tech stack, um, we like I said, we like we're a fully custom build and we think that's important um, for us to really own that customer relationship and to do this like business model design uniquely in the way that we do it. Um, and we also leverage the power of Shopify and the speed and the agility that that provides with all of the plugins and tools and the entire ecosystem that exists around that new technology um, to, to market and iterate and communicate and understand how we can, can continue to invest um, what we learn um, from that experience into our core platform, um, which is actually something we stumbled into through um, COVID and a response to that market environment. So there's, it's been a pivot here and a pivot there, but um, tech has definitely been a big part of what's enabled us to scale so quickly and rapidly um, with having such a, a, a lean um, team. You know, I am never going to look at my like smoothie ever, ever the same. I'm going to look at this raspberry cacao smoothie that I have with me right here. And I'm going to be like, wow, there's a lot that went into that, right? On the 
yes. tech side and on the production side. And that's pretty amazing. Yep. You know, so on that note, um, you just raised with Nicole a 12 million Series B round and you are two female co-CEOs raising funding and you've been very successful bringing on board investors from including the Reddit founders and the Rent the Runway founders. And I'm curious what that experience has been like for you through the pandemic nonetheless. Yeah, <laughs> yes, for sure. Um, it's been, I mean, raising money for everybody is a roller coaster um, and it's not easy to do um, and definitely was not easy to do during the pandemic. So um, actually, that was like one of our pivots. We had many pivots during the pandemic, but that was one of them, um, which was that we stopped raising capital. Um, so we had intended to raise at the beginning of 2021. Um, and instead, uh, after having some conversations and nobody sort of knew which way was up and nobody knew how this was all going to land and and um, capital markets were essentially frozen. Um, and so we quickly made the decision um, to just press pause and say, hey, our, our team needs us, our customer needs us, let's instead just sprint to profitability um, and make some tweaks in how we do things um, and just delay the fundraise. Um, so that's what we did in, in 2021. Um, and 2022 was sort of like, uh, or I'm sorry, in 2020. And then in 2021 was when we actually raised. Um, so what is it like for two female co-CEOs raising money, generally speaking. Um, you know, there's like pros and cons. I think for us, it's been um, really helpful to have the two of us. Um, we sort of like use our, our superpowers um, to have both of us sort of like listening. Um, when one's talking, the other one can be listening and it gives us perspective on um, how to sort of fill in gaps, show our respective strengths and weaknesses, um, sort of understand potentially what an investor is looking for and sort of play that um, off each other, right? And just have sort of like a more dynamic fundraising environment than just a single founder up there pitching um, makes a little bit more of a conversation. Um, and it also gives funder, like it gives the investors the opportunity to see us work together and see that dynamic. Um, and really, you know, have some confidence in, in our like operating and um, innovation chops, you know, like it just, they can kind of see us work. Um, so from that perspective, I think it was really, really cool. I think the hard thing for us and I, I like when I reflect on how, what I took away um, from the last fundraise is, is sort of there, the whole, the whole venture world is sort of designed um, around um, white men, candidly, and and stylistically, um, how how they communicate and how they think about business and all those things. And I think one of the things Nicole and I um, design for and have always designed for is optionality. Like we've always been here's plan A, B, C, D, um, and have sort of like thought about things going lots of different directions and lots of different sequences, all sort of aimed at the overarching mission and not being so hung up on the exact, like the how to, to get there. Um, and our experience is that um, the venture capital world responds much, much more strongly to a definitive, um, yeah. this is exactly how the world is going to look. And this is exactly how Splendid Spoon is going to fit in. And of course it's like wrong every, like almost every time, but that sort of like singular, like this is what it is. And this is how it, we will play, um, is definitely sort of like how things are designed. So I would say that was like shifting our communication style or how we would even like, um, communicate and articulate the, the opportunity of Splendid Spoon definitely evolved 
um, through the series B and, and take that away. And, and it, it's helpful, right? Is obviously we do have like a, a plan A that we think is the most probable. Um, and so just communicating that a little bit differently um, is definitely something that we had to learn. That's incredible advice. I also think it was really bold for you and Nicole to make that strong decision together to pause fundraising in 2020. And, you know, you, you and Nicole did some things for your staff, right? You mentioned that your customers needed you, but also your, your team needed you. And so, you know, as you, this pandemic unfolded, it was a very different world. I know you made some pivots as a business, but specifically for your team, you know, with Nicole, kids at home, you know, many team members having family, like what did you do during that time to stay resilient? And what have you taken with you into these after days, I guess? <laughs> totally, totally. Um, it kind of ebbed and flowed. I think the, the pandemic, it's like 2020 was one version, 2021 was another version. It sort of like had this ongoing lingering effect. But when I think about the early days of 2020, um, I think there was a couple sort of like tenants, um, that, that really helped us. Um, and one was sort of like, like we always do and always come back to it is really like grounding in our mission and our purpose as a business. Mm -hmm. Um, in like, it just so happens, right? Like everybody's stuck at home and grocery store shelves are empty and people are working around essential workers are working around the clock, um, nurses and doctors and, and delivery people. Um, and so on and so forth. And, and so we like, we all sort of like looked within ourselves and we're like, Hey, actually what gives us like the most purpose during these times is how we show up to the, to the moment, um, and how we continue to do what we can do, which is actually feeding people. Right. Um, and so not only like feeding our customers and, um, creating a, you know, a Shopify store that allows them to stock up beyond our typical subscription, which is one thing we built in a weekend. Um, but another was just sort of like, shipping to hospitals and dropping um, smoothies in um, to nurses break rooms and um, just like doing offering what we could offer right because we were a fortunate business that was already set up to be remote first like we already had all of our um, digital first communication tools um, we've always had a flexible work culture because we really are want to be supportive of um, families and the opportunity to work at home or lead at home and at work. And so for us, it was like that adjustment to working at home was not the big shift. It, it was um, how do we like channel our mission and our purpose into this moment? Um, so, and many of us, like we really, like we talked about it quite a bit and it was like, actually the work gave us um, something to focus on um, and, and, um, mo I would say most people, not every, obviously everybody's experience is different, but I think most people felt, um, a sense of groundedness and having something to show up to every day and a sense of gratitude that we, we were sort of, um, not being sort of completely like we weren't shutting down and we weren't laying people off. You know, we were actually going into overdrive and, and sort of like experiencing that was a very fortunate thing for us. Um, so that was definitely something like grounding in our mission, um, I talked about staying flexible. I mean, that was just, we didn't have expectations. We kind of like threw roadmaps out um, and it was kind of like a day-to-day, week-to-week. Um, there was, you know, we got to a sense of a little bit more normalcy after about six months, but for those first, you know, March until September, you know, we were just, 
um, sort of reacting to the times. Um, so we, we did things like went, we paused the raise and went for profitability and we built a Shopify store so customers could stock up. Um, and, and we, you know, like I said, remote first was like a very quick decision and quick and easy decision for us that we've maintained and sort of held as part of our culture. Um, so I would, I would just say that, um, letting go of expectations and really just staying present um, to what was right in front of us was, was a big part of that. Um, and then for us as people, there was just a lot of like holding space for each other um, within our shared space. So allowing people to show up wholly to their, to their work um, and not, you know, kids in background, pets in background, any of that. So, like there's like zero, nobody bats an eye, you know, like we're just like, we just keep moving whatever time of day, like having just sort of like the space for people to just fully be themselves and to say like, Hey, I'm just having a hard day today. I just need to take a break. Like this is becoming overwhelming. Um, that was like what we did with our shared space. Um, and then we just prioritized, um, some fun, some play. We like actually drew with, um, hot sauce. We like drew animals with hot sauce one night. Um, like it's just, you know, like we were like, trying to, to have a little fun in, in the middle of it, take it, make it a little bit, um, lighter. Um, and yeah, just like having people be able to communicate their needs, their emotional states, um, and create the boundaries that they need to, to pause, um, and to, to step away. Um, for Nicole and I, there was very much like a tag team bef- between her sort of newly, uh, she had had a newborn on our March 12th. So, <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was, that was fun. So like she and I sort of like tag team back and forth and then I got COVID shortly thereafter. And so, um, yeah, just holding space for each other and having each other's backs, um, was a big part of it as well. Oh, that's incredible. I have one final question and a little bit of dessert. So, uh, my final question is a question that we ask all of our guests, which is if you can go back in time to when you were much younger, and in this case, I'll plant the moment as your first day in business school, when you knew that you wanted to shift from what you were doing prior to business school to food and health and food and tech, mm-hmm. uh, what's one thing that you would tell that version of yourself today? Mm, this is such a good question. Um, oh my gosh, it's hard to pick one. <laughs> what one piece of advice? I the one thing I've been thinking about this year a lot actually is, um, is really taking the time to like nurture your intuition. And so I, you know, the first decade of my career was very focused on hard skills and experience accumulation. And then I went to business school full-time on the weekends and it was like cases and reading and everything that I could just, I was like consuming constantly Um, and I think I would, I would tell myself to spend just as much time sort of like stepping outside of that, um, and like kind of going internally and creating a little bit more and nurturing sort of like that, that, um, softer side and that creative side, um, and that intuitive side, um, because truly like, I think the, the hardest part of leadership is really sifting sort of signal from the noise and you have to have a really clear um, groundedness and connected to connectedness to all parts of yourself um, and all the signals that are coming in, um, both sort of like, you know, what you're reading and hearing and consuming, but then also just what you're feeling and, and 
um, experiencing and absorbing from the world around you. And, and so um, I think that would be the, my business school, very ambitious um, self. I, I would, that's the number one thing I would tell myself. You know, I think I have to tell the younger version of myself that, that the same thing, because turns out we have, <laughs> going back to food, we have like millions of neurons in our gut. And so yeah. <laughs> guts are thinking for us and we have to take care of our guts. So exactly uh, honor of our guts. If you could indulge in one thing, what sure. would that be? Oh, this is easy. French fries. Yeah. Every oh. time. <laughs> It is plant-based, so it is, right? <laughs> it is, it is, but it's so like salty and delicious. <laughs> oh, way too good. All right, we're gonna dive in uh, to some audience questions. So, how do you nurture your creative side now? Are there specific things that you do? Yeah, totally. Um, so there's a, I kind of like think about it in two different ways. There's sort of like the inspiration and um, the like consuming of things. And then there's sort of like the producing of things. So I try to nurture both. Um, and I would say it's very, I mean, I live in New York, so it's very easy to consume all of the interesting um, art and culture and entertainment and food all the time. Um, and so that is sort of like a important thing for how I spend my time outside of work, you know, I really do try to prioritize um, something inspirational um, and creative about like, I'd say at least like once a month that I'm like being really intentional with it. Of course, I'm like always going out to eat and experiencing lots of rich things, but just sort of like having a little like artist date with myself um, is, is one um, thing that I do. Um, the other is for me, my creative process is actually most commonly um, writing. Um, so I will do, yeah, I'll do, I mean, there's like personal like journaling and, and things of that nature. Um, but I also will just sort of, um, it's sort of my mode for like synthesis and expression, generally speaking. And so I just have a really strong discipline of, of um, reflecting on weeks and even days um, and really just like making space um, for writing. Amazing. Do you write nonfiction or is it uh, fiction? I'm not or? there yet. I'm not there yet. I'm, I'm more in sort of like observation um, and um, insight and sort of like connecting dots because that's a lot of how my brain works um, and parallels in different universes that I'm experiencing. Um, but, you know, I think that would be actually a really good thing for me is to, like, I would love to take a creative writing class. I think that would be really fun. I'm going to call you up in, in a year and ask you about creative <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Each other accountable for these things. All right. A yep. um, couple of more questions coming in. Um, so this is an interesting one. Uh, healthy meals are oftentimes more expensive than cheaper, easier options for families. So, you know, like yep. a lot of folks will take people to fast food, their families to fast food because it's easy, it's quick and it's cheap. So yep. how do you think about that, making it more you know, accessible across various socioeconomic backgrounds? Totally. Um, we, we talk about this and think about this all the time because decidedly like our meals aren't um, 
you know, they aren't uh, accessible to everybody at the price point today. Um, and we're completely and fully aware of that. Um, our average meal prices is, for context, um, is between like nine and $10 after all of sort of like our, our pricing mechanisms. Um, and so they are, um, they aren't, you know, three to $4 that you could potentially get in a grocery store. Um, but they are, I think, in some instances, they are, they can be competitive with fast food these days, depending on what you're buying. Uh, but I digress. Um, so how we think about it, um, we're actually talking about this in terms of like long term um, scaling for us and our ability to reach scale for from a consumer standpoint. Um, also allows us to manufacture at different in different ways um, and have a lower cost uh, of inputs um, from like ingredients and labor and automation of those things. Um, so we think a lot about that in our co-manufacturing um, system design and um, our long-run omni-channel strategy is our hope of how we will we will reach um, sort of like more accessibility. But we also know like. We're not going to completely sacrifice on on quality today, and that is just the reality um, of manufacturing um, the type of food that we manufacture. Um, I hope as as it becomes more mainstream, all of these things do become um, cheaper and cheaper. Um, the other thing is we do um, we do talk about um, volume purchasing on our site, even like being able to reduce your price or your cost um, per meal if you're buying. In bulk, which is also good for the planet, right? If you're getting more and throwing it in your freezer, there's less transportation. And so that that is sort of like a win-win. Um, and we also share hacks. So a lot of our um, soups and, and bowls actually um, work really nicely as sort of like added with grains and rice and extend it to like an entire family. That's actually what I do a lot. Um, I like put a soup on top of, of rice and add some greens and um, it can sort of like feed um, definitely multiple people. Um, and, you know, obviously that isn't like forever in scalable solution, but it is a right now thing that, that we encourage people to do. Well, it's amazing that you're thinking about these things. And I know you're targeting a very specific group of individuals at the moment, but um, it's part yeah. of your interest to think about the broader aspects of this too. All right, definitely. I'm gonna ask two more questions and then we're gonna close out. So. Um, this one's an interesting one. Uh, what are some of the competitive advantages that allow your company to build a moat uh, outside of first movers advantage from larger companies like Amazon, who can potentially mobilize really quickly? Yeah, totally. Totally. Oh, it's, it's such a good question. Um, so I, I mean, I have a little thesis or philosophy that there isn't really a fir first mover advantage when it comes to the hearts and minds of consumers. So it isn't the same. Um, sure, there's timing always matters and sort of like momentum definitely matters. Um, that is true. And like capturing demand is definitely true, but there is a there's something a little bit different when you're, when you are sort of like speaking to an individual um, about a product, about a brand, about a lifestyle that, does sort of transcend that like you can have a new brand at any time that it, if it is more relevant um if it is more um like meeting of a customer expectation they will switch and so it's a little bit different than like um a technology or a um sort of like a, a supply chain um first mover advantage um 
And so we actually, I mean, that's how we think about our competitive moat. Um, we think a lot about um, our brand equity and our innovation process and skill and just our ability to make better food, a better product. It's it's sort of like the, the fundamentals, like we talked about brains and bronze. It's kind of going back to like those basics of, of customer um of brand and of product um and if you get those three things right and it is unique and and um just delivering more value um there's less of a uh timing or um sort of like space there's there's more space it, it will grow and and our market has grown um and that has been our experience as more people have entered the plant-based space it's also made the market bigger um, so we credit things like Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat for like really widening our market. Um, and they're not, you know, we're not, we're, we don't use their products, but we use, you know, meat alternatives in some of our products. And it's delicious. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at ecorner.stanford.edu.